Springfield, Massachusetts, the 18th day of April, 1958. There's a thrilling recording in the archives of the Library of Congress in Washington. This is a field recording of the poems of Sylvia Plath. This is Lee Anderson speaking. In this recording, we hear the American poet Sylvia Plath read her poems and talk about her writing process. And when the interviewer asks what poets she reads for pleasure, the first name she mentions is a familiar one. Well, um, Yeats. I said Ted Hughes. <laughs> uh, Ted Hughes continually, and Yeats, um, Yeats, Eliot, John Crow Ransom especially. I have um, started reading Robert Lowell. I like a, a good deal in Robert Lowell. And uh, then, let's see, Shakespeare, Chaucer, who else? Uh, Thomas Wyatt. Ted Hughes, one of the poet's plath names, and her husband, is beside her. Um, who else, Ted, you know? Hopkins, yes, Gerard Manley, Hopkins. And finally, she goes back to the first poet on her list. I think Yeats is, I, I like very, very much. I'm Leon Flynn, and I've loved the poetry of Sylvia Plath since I read her not as a moody and tortured adolescent, but as a moody and tortured 20-something writing the poems in my first book. I also read more about the extraordinary conditions surrounding the composition of Plath's greatest work. And, as I discovered, she has a connection with a poetry giant closer to home. Yeats was always sort of her, her lodestar. Sylvia Plath was inspired by W.B. Yeats throughout her whole life. She loved his work and studied it closely. Yeats echoes throughout her poetry. And as we'll hear, she made a visit to Ireland in 1962 to follow in his footsteps. The first sentence of my biography invokes Yeats. Heather Clark published her major and authoritative biography, Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, in 2020. I wanted that first sentence um, to make a connection between Plath and Yeats because I wanted to situate her in this Yeatsian tradition, and I wanted to call attention to his importance in her life. He's one of the biggest literary influences, um, along with people like D.H. Lawrence and Ted Hughes, Eliot, Joyce. But I think Yeats was, was the most important to her. Sylvia Plath's relationship with Yeats began early. She started listening to Yeats at a very young age. Her mother read Yeats to her when she was a toddler. So, so those Yeatsian rhythms, um, she began to, to hear them quite early. And, you know, I think her childhood poems are actually quite influenced by Yeats. There, there are images of, of fairies dancing beneath the moon. And you, you sort of you sort of hear echoes of the stolen child and the song of wandering Angus, you know, the, the early Yeats, that, that kind of dark romanticism. So I, I think he's there in her, her childhood poems. And these are poems she wrote when she was eight, nine, ten. You can see the influence. So, so right from the start, I think, he's shadowing her. Plath attended Bradford Senior High School in Wesley, Massachusetts, and there deepened her love of literature in general and of Yeats in particular. 
In high school, she took a three-year honor seminar with a very influential teacher named Wilbury Crockett, and he taught her Yeats, Eliot, Joyce, Lawrence. He was big on the modernists. And I think that maybe the most important Yeats poem for her at this time was The Cold Heaven. You can see it in many, many high school poems. Two that stand out are Alone and Alone in the Woods Was I, and there's another one called Joy. And in these poems, um, she's just sort of playing around with these paradoxical dueling visions of heat and cold and fire and frost and, uh, you know, these very Yeatsian images. And these are unpublished poems, but, uh, but the influence is, is quite obvious. From high school, Plath went on in 1950 to study at Smith College, Northampton, on a scholarship. She was studying poems by Yeats. She was reading criticism. Interestingly, she devoured critical books on Yeats by Louis McNeese, by Richard Ellman. So uh, she was very much in touch with the kind of, you know, the larger kind of critical uh, material on Yeats as well. This is critic and lecturer Dr Maria Johnston. Maria has seen first-hand evidence of Plath's fascination with Yeats as a student and apprentice poet. I actually, when I was at Smith, I was able to view her books from her own personal library. So I saw her complete Yeats poems, her, her collected plays, and uh, they're all so heavily annotated, you know, with notes, underlines. So she was such an engaged and enthusiastic reader. She, she has a wonderful uh, response to reading Yeats. She says that the scalp crawled, the hair stood up, you know, so it was such a physical, physical reaction to, to his work um, from very early on. Yeats was a towering figure in poetry on both sides of the Atlantic in the mid-20th century. And we can trace the influence of Yeats on her development as a poet. Well, I think Yeats is a key influence. This is Gerald Daw, poet and professor emeritus of Trinity College, Dublin. I mean, I think you can run the ruler over individual poems from early past to her final poems, and you'll, you'll hear echoes of Yeats. And she talks about the influence of his sound system of assonance and consonance. And this is something she talks about in the 1958 Library of Congress recording. I learned uh, my first changing in sound, assonance and consonance from Yeats, which I mean actually is technical. I was very excited when I discovered this. I also read uh, Dylan Thomas a good deal for the subtleties of sound. I'd never worked with anything except rhyme before and very rigid rhyme and so I began uh, developing schemes and patterns of sound that were somehow less obvious but you get, you get them through your ear if not through your eye and I think that uh, I just happened to learn this from Yeats and Thomas too in a way. Also I think there are two other things that strike me about Yeats's influence on Plath's poems. The first one is the sense in which she was drawn to his landscapes. It's not a warm, sensual kind of landscape. It's, it's an ominous landscape. One of these ominous psychological landscapes is found in Sylvia Plath's late poem, Mystic. Plath's lines here echo Yeats's famous words in his poem, Easter 1916. Changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. And the air's mill of hooks calls back to the cold and rook-delighting heaven of a Yeats poem Plath read as a girl, one in which imagination and heart are driven wild, the cold heaven. 
Ah, when the ghost begins to quicken, confusion of the deathbed over, is it sent out naked on the roads, as the books say, and stricken by the injustice of the skies for punishment. The poem is read here by Annie Ryan. Mystic. The air is a mill of hooks, questions without answer, glittering and drunk as flies, whose kiss stings unbearably in the fetid wombs of black air under pines in summer. I remember the dead smell of sun on wood cabins, the stiffness of sails, the long, salt, winding sheets. Once one has seen God, what is the remedy? Once one has been seized up without a part left over, not a toe, not a finger, and used, used utterly in the sun's conflagrations, the stains that lengthen from ancient cathedrals, what is the remedy? The pill of the communion tablet, the walking beside still water, memory, or picking up the bright pieces of Christ in the faces of rodents, the tame flower nibblers, the ones whose hopes are so low they are comfortable the humpback in a small washed cottage under the spokes of the clematis. Is there no great love, only tenderness? Does the sea remember the walker upon it, meaning leaks from the molecules? The chimneys of the city breathe, the window sweats, the children leap in their cots, the sun blooms, it is a geranium. The heart has not stopped. The other thing is... It's the way in which she kind of imitates, makes her own, but imitates Yeats's use of the personal pronoun, this sense of speaking through the eye, and how that becomes a dramatic force in her poems. I think that's Yeatsian. We can hear something of that declarative, theatrical tone in the opening stanzas of perhaps Sylvia Plath's most famous poem, Daddy a poem in which she performs her own personal psychodrama. You do not do, you do not do, any more black shoe, in which I have lived like a foot for thirty years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe, or achoo. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one grey toe, big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters of beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you. Ach, do. I said two things, there is a third thing. And the third thing is, I think, without a shadow of a doubt, and this is not psychobabble, but I think it's true, that Yeats's intrigue with afterlives, posthumous lives, the other world, the other life, I think she was drawn to that. Plath's willingness to delve into a life beyond present-day realities saw her take extraordinary artistic risks in her poems, walking a line between dramatising her naked inner life and succumbing to it. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. Sadly, these lines from Lady Lazarus foreshadow what was involved in taking that risk.
1956, Sylvia Plath was studying in Cambridge in England on a Fulbright scholarship. Famously, she and the poet Ted Hughes met there at a raucous literary party on February 25th. Plath afterwards wrote in her journal about how Hughes very suddenly kissed her on the mouth and neck and she bit his cheek. Hughes left bleeding. As well as a ferocious passion for poetry and each other, Plath and Hughes shared a passion for the poetry of W.B. Yeats. I think Yeats played a big part in her attraction to him, especially. Um, He was somebody who I think embodied this Yeatsian sensibility um, that she was trying to get more of into her own poetry. And she liked the wildness. She liked the sort of rebel hearts, you know, um, Ted Hughes and, and his friends. They were starting a new literary magazine that was supposed to shock British poetry into submission. And, and the party where they met was a celebration. It was a launch party of this new magazine, the St. Botolph's Review. Their courtship was, was conducted through reading Yeats together and discussing Yeats and, again, very intensely um, communing with Yeats. And they even had, you know, sessions at the Ouija board. And uh, that magical, mystical element of Yeats' poetry is something that they explored together. And, you know, they, they really kind of brought that out in each other's work. So Hughes and Yeats become, I think, a kind of a, a double influence uh, on Plath at this point. But Plath's talent in this period was growing beyond simple imitation of Yeats. This is 1956 and Plath's own symbolism is developing very much. You know, she's, she's developing away from kind of prominent influences and, and moving into her own achieved voice at, at this point. Just four months after they first met, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes married on the 16th of June, 1956. They went on to have two children, Frida and Nicholas, during an intensely productive six years working closely together, creatively and domestically. By 1962, however, things had begun to go awry, and it was now that the opportunity arose to visit the land of their hero, W.B. Yeats. The trip came about through the Anglo-Irish poet Richard Murphy, someone that Gerald Daw knew personally. Jerry, you knew Richard Murphy. Can you say a bit about what he was like? First of all, he was a very tall, handsome-looking Anglo-Irish man. I knew him, but I didn't know him very well, but I knew him kind of well. Uh, we met in uh, the west of Ireland, and uh, I was living in Galway. And If I was travelling east to Dublin, he'd often take me in the car, and we would hit off. Uh, he was from the west of Ireland. He loved the place, and I, I think in many ways he saw himself as being a Westerner. Here's Richard Murphy himself, speaking about the west of Ireland in an episode of The Darkness Echoing, on RTE Radio 1 from 1997. Well, I always loved the West of Ireland. Um, not only was I born there, but, but it was always um, in paradise. In, uh, if in so far as paradise had a myth in our childhood, it was, it was the West of Ireland. And the further west we went, the more beautiful it became in our mother's and grandmother's eyes. They were, they were watercolourists, and, and um, the ideal of beauty was, was a, a mountain with a cloud on it reflected in a lake. I suppose in the background, too, 
outside of the family connection for, for Richard Murphy, there was, of course, Yeats. I mean, Yeats's shadow was very strong right throughout the 40s and 50s and 60s. I mean, there still was that very strong sense of the Yeats inheritance um, and Lady Gregory as well, of course, uh, also well-connected in Galway and, and Clare. In his 2002 memoir, The Kick, based on the diaries he'd kept of literary life in Ireland, England and beyond, Richard Murphy recalled his first conversation with Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes after they met at a poetry reading at the Mermaid Theatre in London in 1961. The reader is Sean O'Neill. Our talk was more about living in the country, fishing and the sea, than about poetry. Ted, whose first two volumes I owned and admired, made a strong, silent impression, speaking much less than Sylvia, whose poetry I had never read except for the odd poem in a magazine. They both were interested in my struggle to make a living with an old refurbished hooker on the west coast of Ireland. The following year, in July of 1962, Richard Murphy's poem, Epilogue to the Cleggan Disaster, won first prize at the Cheltenham Festival. Sylvia was a judge and she wrote to Murphy with the good news from Court Green in Devon, where she and Ted had a home with their children. She also had a particular request for Murphy. Sylvia's letter of Saturday, July 21st, went on to plead that she desperately needed a boat and the sea and no squalling babies, and that she thought I would be a lovely person to visit. She added a postscript saying how glad she was about Elliot having accepted my poems at Faber. I replied with a telegram saying, Do hope you can come after the 8th of September. Stay with me and sail. Sylvia's desire to visit Richard Murphy in the west of Ireland was not just because of the Yeats connection. She was hoping that the trip to Ireland would recharge the marriage. She and Hughes were having marital problems at this point. Um, Asia Wevel was in the picture. But uh, she told her friend Elizabeth Sigmund that she hoped that the trip to Ireland would be a rapprochement. Um, between her and Hughes, and that going to Yeats's home ground, as it were, would maybe kind of bless the marriage again. Sylvia and Ted did make the trip to Ireland, travelling first to Dublin, where they spent a few days, then arriving in the village of Cleggan in Galway on Thursday the 13th of September 1962. Richard Murphy was living in a converted forge. Local woman Mary Coyne cooked for him, and her son Seamus helped when he took tourists out on his boat, the Ave Maria, on trips to Inishboffin Island, which the Hugheses hoped to visit. The day after they arrived, there was a forecast of rain and southeast winds, making a passage to the island undesirable. So I took them to Yates's Tower at Ballylee and Lady Gregory's Cool Park. I had no car but a seven-horsepower minivan used for selling the fish we had caught. Sylvia sat in front talking to me about her marriage and mine. In the back, which was too small to contain seats, Ted talked to Seamus about poachers, guns and fishing. We went first to Cool, where I showed them the copper beech tree in the pleasure ground. Sylvia urged Ted to climb a spiked iron fence that protected the tree and to carve his initials beside those of Yeats. She said he deserved to be in that company more than some of the Irish writers, J.M. Singh, A.E., George Bernard Shaw, who had made their now almost illegible mark. I can imagine the anxiety 
of Richard when he discovered that the, the two, Ted and Sylvia Plath, were egging one another on, really, particularly Sylvia Plath, who said to Ted Hughes, get over the, the barbed wire, or the, the, the metal surround around the tree. I mean, I'm sure Richard must have really had a heart attack at the notion of this. That, that didn't happen. They no, couldn't they didn't. get over it. No, no, no. And I think actually Hughes demurred, to be honest. I think he... You know, probably he didn't just, try very hard. He didn't try very hard. <laughs> From Lady Gregory's estate in Cool Park, Plath and Hughes headed to Yeats's tower at Thor Ballylee. This was the Anglo-Norman tower Yeats had made his family home from 1921 to 29, and an enduring monument and symbol in his poetry. Thorbali Lee was in ruins. It was another few years, 1965, that it was opened in a refurbished state. But of course, to arrive in Thorbali Lee in its ruins must have been a supercharging event for, for Perhaps Sylvia. Perhaps better in its ruins, in yeah, fact, exactly. than it was when it was It must have really sent electric waves through yeah. But, I mean, I think what Murphy was trying to do was to show the, the couple, uh, the two poets, this romantic west of Ireland. And to he probably knew, I'm sure, I've no doubt in my mind he knew, that both Plath and Hughes revered Yeats's poetry. So uh, a place of pilgrimage in some exactly, ways. Exactly. Um, it is exactly what it was. It was a pilgrimage. He said one of the, the most special memories he had of Plath and Hughes was of the two of them in Yeats's tower together. And he said they were finally confronting Yeats together there for the first time. And there was something really moving about seeing them there in that, in that setting. The tower at that time was the ruin predicted by Yeats in the poem Carved on a Stone at Ballylee. People in the neighbourhood had taken everything that could be moved, the tourist board had not begun its restoration, and the road was still untarred. A patient ass was rubbing its ears on the gate. Jackdaws fled, protesting as we climbed the spiral stairs. From the top, Sylvia threw coins into the stream. Then they noticed a moss-coated apple tree, planted in the time of Yeats, bearing a heavy crop of bright red cookers. Ted and Sylvia both insisted that we should steal them. Richard Murphy did not think this was a good idea. Um, well, he's and he, local, he's living there. Exactly. Yes. He was very uncomfortable with this. And then Ted Hughes said, well, when you come to a place like this, you have to violate it. And what do you think he meant by that? I, I don't know if he, if he just meant he was talking back to Yeats in some way or... In the, and also in the spirit of him, you know what I mean? Yeah. If the maverick, yeah, romantic, that again, not doing quite what you're told or exactly. what you're supposed to do. That, yeah. that sense of rebellion was always so strong in both of them. Despite their joint adventure in stealing Yeats' apples, things were not, in fact, going well for Plath and Hughes as a couple. And Richard Murphy attempted to ease the tension, though this did not quite work out as planned. On Friday night, I rang Tom Kinsella in Dublin, asking him to come down the next day from Dublin and help me entertain my guests, who were marvellous company, but not getting on well together. I wanted to break our triangle into a square. So, while Tom was on his way by car to Cleggan, I took Sylvie and Ted out on the Ave Maria and landed them on Inish Boffin where they stayed until I picked them up for the return journey at five o'clock. 
During our passage of six miles across open water with a strong current and an ocean swell, Sylvia lay prone on the foredeck, leaning out over the prow, a triumphal figurehead inhaling the sea air ecstatically, as if she were challenging the ocean to rise up and claim her. Ted Hughes decides after the trips to um, Cool Park and Thor Bally Lee and Inish Buffin, he decides that he's going to visit his friend Barry Cook, the expressionist painter who is living down in County Clare. And this happens quite suddenly. Yes, very suddenly. And Plath is not happy about this. Um, Hughes tells her he'll meet her at the Dublin boat in a few days. And Richard Murphy wakes up and discovers... Yes, Richard... Hughes is gone. Yes, Richard Murphy is uncomfortable with the situation because he's, he's uh, as he describes himself, a sort of Anglo-Irishman with an English accent living in a rural Catholic <laughs> village, and he's established this fragile alliance with the villagers. Here he is alone with a married woman, and he's worried about um, what people will say. Is it just that he's worried about what people will say, or is there any sense that he's personally worried that she he's, has got the wrong? Yes, he is... Well, Plath had been confiding in him through the visit about some of her marital troubles, and he had been telling her that it, this was not worth ending the marriage over, that one one adulterous lapse was not something that, that she needed to get a divorce over. And, and so he was sort of trying to smooth things over, but he was also worried that she might have been romantically interested in him. Because of the kick? The kick, yes. The kick under the table, the yeah. There was, a, there was a kick under the table, which may or may not have been accidental. We don't know. Sometime during the meal, Sylvia gave me a gentle kick under the table. This alarmed me because I didn't want to have an affair with her or break up her marriage or be used to make Ted jealous or upset Mary Coyne. It's a bit strange, all right. I mean, uh, I don't know. How, how can we ever say what actually happened? I mean, Richard makes a point in the memoir that, as we would say, she was trying to get off with him, you know. But she knew he was a gay man. Uh, maybe... As other people have suggested, it was just a kind of a, an error. She just kicked him and that was it. It just happened. So with Hughes abruptly gone, the couple's yet-centred truce broken and the future of the marriage foundering, Richard Murphy decided not to risk interpreting Sylvia's undertable kick as accidental and asked Plath to leave immediately. Plath was furious. She's humiliated. She's... she's furious, she's seething, she's humiliated when Hughes left, and then Richard Murphy asked her to leave. He summons Kinsella and uh, Tom Kinsella, Thomas Kinsella comes riding in to, to, to sort things out. She returns with Kinsella to Dublin, and uh, Eleanor, Thomas Kinsella's wife, looks after her, and they take her to the, uh, the boat for her to return to England. Uh, Hughes didn't show up. And she goes back to Devon, and that's it. That's, that's, that's the end of the that's marriage? That's the end of the marriage. The trip to Ireland that was supposed to save the marriage actually ended the marriage. And she gets home to Devon, and she writes to her friends and says, it is over. But though Ireland hadn't provided a new start for them, and despite the misunderstandings and ugly finale to the trip, Sylvia soon wrote to Richard Murphy, thanking him warmly 
Court Green, North Taunton, Devonshire, England, September 21st. Dear Richard, I cannot thank you enough for your hospitality and the wonderful, wonderful food of Mrs. Coyne. The boats and the sea were like a great cure for me. Two days later, Plath also wrote to her mother with news of the children to whom she had returned after her short break and again describing the trip to the colourful west of Ireland with great enthusiasm. September 23rd, 1962. Dear Mother, thank you for your letter. The children are fine. Nicholas has cut his first tooth and is the most energetic, bouncy child imaginable. He crawls all over the playroom, playing with Frida's blocks, much to her consternation. Put in pen, put in pram, she tells me to do with him, and gathers all the toys he seems to like in a little heap out of his reach. I had a wonderful four days in Ireland, treated to oysters and Guinness and brown bread in Dublin by Jack and Marie Sweeney of the Lamont Library, Harvard. Then two eggs, homemade butter, and warm milk straight from the cows every breakfast in wild Connemara, about 50 miles from Galway. My happiness was compounded of the sailing, the fishing, the sea, and the kind people and wonderful cooking of an Irish woman from whom I bought a beautiful hand-knit sweater. Indeed, Plath wrote, she planned to return to Ireland in only a matter of months for a longer stretch to start the new phase of her life as self-sufficient writer and mother. I was also very lucky in finding a woman after my own heart, one of those sturdy, independent horse and whiskey set with a beautiful cottage, turf fires the most comfortable and savoury fire imaginable, her own tea-tea-tested cows and butter churn, which she will rent to me for December through February and show me all the sea walks. I will try to rent the house for three months. I want to be where no possessions remind me of the past and by the sea, which for me is the great healer. So Plath was busy making plans to come back in November. Um, that's, that's how much she fell in love with Ireland. She wanted to spend the whole winter there with her children. Two weeks later, she wrote to Richard Murphy again, responding to a piece he had published in the Observer newspaper mentioning Yeats's tower at Thor Ballylee. She was, she said, already homesick for Ireland, which had come to symbolise renewal for her. Sunday, October 7th. Dear Richard, the review was lovely. It was fine to see it there in the middle of everything and so spacious. Only Ted says they were jackdaws. As far as I'm concerned, every blackbird is a rook. It was like a brilliant enamel, your account of the place, and made me homesick for it. The first pure, clear place I've been for some time. Ireland, perhaps an American's idea of Ireland, on a more practical level seemed to offer childcare solutions, which were often Plath's priority. There, she could turn her attention fully to the poetry pressing on her, Exhilaratingly, she told Murphy, in her new freedom. I shall be coming to Moyard with Ted's aunt as a companion and I hope to get an Irish girl to live in and accompany me back if I have the luck of the Irish. 
I shall try for a good Catholic, and maybe she can convert me, only I suppose I am damned already. Do they ever forgive divorcees? I am getting a divorce, and you are right. It is freeing. I am writing for the first time in years, a real self, long smothered. I get up at 4 a.m. when I wake, and it is black, and I write to the babe's wake. It is like writing in a train tunnel, or God's intestine. Regards, Sylvia. She was extremely excited about it. She wrote to friends and family about the walks that she would take on the cliffs and the whiskey she would drink, and she was going to make friends with these women in the village. And, um, oh, she was she was just very excited about it. But her plans then changed. Um, in, I would say, early November, she, I think she realized that if she was going to make it as a single uh, woman, as a writer, she needed to be near a literary community and literary culture in London. So the Ireland plans began to recede and she looked, uh, she looked to London then. With the plan to spend winter in the remote west of Ireland, abandoned almost as soon as it was made, Plath now wrote to her mother on the 7th of November from London. She had exciting news. And once again, uncannily, her destiny would be guided by Yeats. London, England, November 7th, 1962. Dear Mother, I am writing from London. So happy I can hardly speak. I think I have found a place. By an absolute fluke, I walked by the street and the house with Primrose Hill at the end, where I've always wanted to live. The house had builders in it and a sign, flats to let. I flew upstairs, just right, unfurnished, on two floors with three bedrooms upstairs, lounge, kitchen and bath downstairs and a balcony garden. Flew to the agents, hundreds of people ahead of me, I thought, as always. It seems I have a chance and guess what? It is W.B. Yeats's house with a blue plaque over the door saying he lived there. Well, one friend remembers that she specifically went to this flat to see if it was for rent because she knew that Yeats had lived there as a child. Um, but then she told her mother she found it by chance. So who knows? Um, I suspect that she did go to, <laughs> to see if it was for rent. 19th November, 1962. I am in an agony of suspense about the flat. I was first on the list of applicants. Already I have met an offer for £50 more a year. Now they have sent out for my references, in other words, to solicitor, banker, accountant, to see if I can afford it. I had the uncanny feeling I had got in touch with Yeats's spirit. He was a sort of medium himself when I went to his tower in Ireland. I opened a book of his plays in front of Susan as a joke for a message and read, Get wine and food to give you strength and courage, and I will get the house ready. Isn't that fantastic? She lived inside Omens, and this was the big omen, that she was actually moving into the house that Yates had lived in uh, as a young boy, uh, and that he was going to be her protector. December 14th, 1962. Dear Mother, Well, here I am, safely in Yates's house. 
I can just about allow myself time for a cup of tea and a bit of letter writing after the immensity of the move, closing up the Devon house and opening this place. And I can truly say I have never been so happy in my life. I just sit thinking, whew, I have done it and beaming. Shall I write a poem? Shall I paint a floor? Shall I hug a baby? Everything is such fun, such an adventure. And if I feel this way now, with everything bare and to be painted and curtains to be made, etc., what will I feel when I get the flat as I dream it to be? Plath felt she had achieved the impossible. She was free now to be both artist, anointed by fate, no less, and autonomous single mother. But the feelings of triumph, delicious adventure and safety were to be short-lived. Indeed, Plath's optimism here is heartbreaking in light of what was to happen in less than two months. And already the difficulties of her life were beginning to mount. Well, she wanted financial independence. Uh, she was very worried about money and about looming battles over alimony and, and things like that. And she was hoping that The Bell Jar would be published in America because she felt like that would secure her financial independence. She called it a pot boiler. I mean, she thought of it as a money-making kind of book. She did, yeah. And and this was her plan. Um this would support her independent life in London, and she also hoped to meet more women writers. She wrote to Stevie Smith. She, she said, let's have tea. Unfortunately, um, her plans were dashed when the Bell Jar was rejected in America by Knopf. And she got that news in late December. I mean, her mood at this point is, is, is very up and very down, and, and these blows, I mean, they really are actually blows to her hopes and her future. Absolutely. I think that the rejection of the Bell Jar by two American publishers, Harper Brothers, um, had rejected it as well. I, I think that was an enormous blow to Plath because American publication really mattered to her. I mean, she was already, um, I think, edging toward a depression, and, and this, this news didn't help. The December of 1962 and January of 1963 also saw the coldest English winter of the 20th century the big freeze. In Plath's wonderful new London flat, the pipes froze and there were frequent power cuts. Both Frida, not yet three, and Nicholas, less than one year old, frequently caught colds and ran high fevers, as did Plath herself. She engaged a German au pair, it didn't work out, and Plath badly needed to be alone with herself and her writing. To be kept from writing was, for her, a torment. Plath developed a respiratory infection, wrote by candlelight, numbed by codeine, and in mid-January was sick enough to qualify for free housekeeping help from the British Home Health Service. But without a breakout success for her novel The Bell Jar in Britain, and with the reality of her sometimes ambiguous split from Ted becoming horribly clear, it was Plath's mental health that deteriorated most and fast. Some of her poems start to take on a kind of, um, I would say, chillier aura, chillier imagery. And I think she, she does write well there, but, but the mood has changed.
On the 5th of February 1963, Plath wrote Balloons, an almost cheerful poem about her infant children, and Edge, a controlled, literary and appallingly calm poem, centering on the image of a dead mother. Edge was written in Yeats House, 23 Fitzroy Road, London, NW1, is written on the very top of the typescript of Edge. And uh, it reminds me always of what she said about Yeats. She described Yeats as lyrical and sharp, clear, rock cut. And this poem is exactly that. I mean, every word is chosen. The weight of every word has, has been measured. Um, and, and, and the control uh, in this poem... I, I'm always so saddened when um, people speak of Plath as maybe a kind of a hysterical writer or, a, you know, too emotional. And I mean, the control in a poem like this, the, the rock cut quality, what she does with language in a poem like this and poetic form is just staggering. It's often read as Plath's suicide note. It wasn't. It was a very finely crafted poem full of literary allusions. Um, she wrote it about a week before her death. It probably was the last poem that she wrote. But I think there's a Yeatsian subtext in Edge as well. I think she's writing back to Yeats, um, to his, his famous poem, He Wishes His Beloved Were Dead. Were you but lying cold and dead, and lights were paling out of the west, you would come hither and bend your head, and I would lay my head on your breast, and you would murmur tender words, forgiving me because you were dead. So... She opens, the woman is perfected. Her dead body wears the smile of accomplishment. I mean, it's almost like a, a gloss on Yeats's poem. And then she just takes off into a complete and utterly Plathian. Each dead child called a white serpent, one at each little pitcher of milk now empty. I mean, it's one of the most heartbreaking poems I've ever read. Edge. The woman is perfected. Her dead body wears the smile of accomplishment. The illusion of a Greek necessity flows in the scrolls of her toga. Her bare feet seem to be saying, We have come so far, it is over. Each dead child coiled a white serpent, one at each little pitcher of milk, now empty. She has folded them back into her body as petals of a rose close when the garden stiffens and odours bleed from the sweet, deep throats of the night flower. The moon has nothing to be sad about, staring from her hood of bone. She is used to this sort of thing. Her blacks crackle and drag. Sylvia Plath died by suicide on the 11th of February, 1963, in her flat on Fitzroy Road with its plaque to W.B. Yeats. She was 30 years old. It's tragic that she, she died in Yeats's house because, in a way, he was such an enabling influence, always. I mean, it's not as if there's a clear A equals B equ equation between Plath and Yeats. I think he merges through landscape, through the voice, through the metaphors and images. Uh, and also, I think she possibly thought that Yeats's international standing as a poet writing in English was something that she aspired to. It's interesting, though, to think of, you know, what might have happened. You know, she could have been renting a cottage a few miles from Michael Longley in Mayo. 
and uh, living out her life, uh, becoming perhaps an American Irish poet. Um, and things had just gone differently. If, if things you know, had gone differently, yeah. yeah. For me, the genius of Sylvia Plath's last poems lie in their intense concentration. Poems like Edge, published in her posthumous collection Ariel, are honed like knives against the impossible conditions out of which they arise. No poet can write like this without knowing how good the work is. And it would have satisfied Plath's fierce ambition to know her international reputation now rivals that of her example, Yeats. Plath's naked ghost haunts the poetry world still. Could she have survived the ordeal of her 30th year, reconciling her life and art, to live on an expat poet in the west of Ireland close to the sea she loved? Perhaps we can hear an answer in Plath's poem, Black Rook in Rainy Weather. With its Yeatsian stanzas and its very Yeatsian rook, it's a poem in which the speaker glimpses beauty in the ordinary after a season of fatigue, a content of sorts. Let's finish with that poem, read here by Sylvia Plath herself. Black rook in rainy weather. On the stiff twig up there hunches a wet black rook, arranging and rearranging its feathers in the rain. I do not expect a miracle or an accident to set the sight on fire in my eye. I seek no more in the desultory weather some design, but let spotted leaves fall as they fall without ceremony or portent. Although I admit I desire occasionally some back talk from the mute sky, I can't honestly complain. A certain minor light may still leap incandescent out of kitchen table or chair, as if a celestial burning took possession of the most obtuse objects now and then, thus hallowing an interval otherwise inconsequent by bestowing largesse, honour, one might say love. At any rate, I now walk wary, for it could happen even in this dull, ruinous landscape, sceptical yet politic, ignorant of whatever angel may choose to flare suddenly at my elbow. I only know that a rook, ordering its black feathers, can so shine as to seize my senses, haul my eyelids up, and grant a brief respite from fear of total neutrality. With luck trekking stubborn through this season of fatigue, I shall patch together a content of sorts. Miracles occur if you care to call those spasmodic tricks of radiance miracles. The wait's begun again, the long wait for the angel, for that rare, random descent. This has been a field recording of Sylvia Plath's poems and comments made in Springfield, Massachusetts, on the 18th day of April, 1958. A copy of this recording has been deposited with the Poetry Archive of the Library of Congress, Permission for this broadcast has been obtained from the copyright owners. This is Lee Anderson speaking.